Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. Kimball Geisler, welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you. You know, we so we go way back. Well, way back. A couple years, I guess. How long has it been since I've met you? Probably, Probably a couple. Probably couple years. Couple. Yeah. So, But I've had the privilege of painting with you a few times, which has been really awesome because um, I'm a huge fan of your landscapes, huge I, fan of your work. I've had the privilege. I've had the privilege. <laughs> yeah, of... whatever, man. Well, I appreciate that. That's awesome. So, okay. So I don't know a lot about your background though. We've never really talked about how you got into art, why you got into art. You know, tell me a little bit about that. Start from your childhood. Have you always been an artist? Yeah. Uh, no, no, I have not. Really? And, um, yeah, I, I mean, look, my like foundational story isn't that exciting honestly but there's just a little bit of weird things where it's not quite like other people's maybe in the sense that like you know i i definitely wasn't that kid in class that was good at drawing all the cartoons and all the cool like superheroes or cars or whatever that wasn't really me no kidding uh, when i was really little yeah uh you know but it was weird though i'd see those kids like you know they were always in your class and yeah they were always really good and they were always getting all that attention and I, I was always kind of like, I could do that. And yet I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> You're blessed but, with but, self-esteem. But there was like, so, yeah, well, no, there was like something in me that like what they were doing kind of resonated with me. So sometimes I wonder if we artists, like we have like certain, uh, I don't know the word, propensities, you know, mm. that are hidden. So anyway, um, I wasn't that kid. Uh, I was like, uh, you know, and I, so I should say, I originally come from California. I lived till I was nine in Riverside, which, you know, just wasn't that formative or that interesting when it comes to art. But I lived there till I was nine. Then I was nine. I moved up to Northern California, this little farming town of like 20,000 people. It was at the time. I don't know what it is now, but it's called Dixon. And uh, in Dixon, that's where I like went to high school and stuff. And so it wasn't until like mid high school when art just started to become something for me, you know, but uh, I was into skateboarding, heavy metal. Um, I hated outdoors, generally speaking. I just, <laughs> this like, is tripping me out. Are you serious? Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, uh, I, lo I love to be outside. Like, right. you know, as a kid, you do, and especially in the 90s, you know how it was. You did outside stuff. You played video games, true, but you also or on your bike or your skateboard or whatever. So it's not like I was one of these, like never saw sunlight types, but, uh, I didn't, I didn't like, like hiking, you know, I was in boy scouts and I hated boy scouts. I always hated boy scouts and we did hike and I hated it. Um, but, but, uh, in, in high school, like, uh, and I think I did, I took this class and my teacher, she, she showed us, uh, 
pastel portraits. She had like this book that if my memory suits me well, was really good. It had like really good pastel portraiture. But most of like the art class that I was in in, in high school was just kind of really rudimentary. You know how it is in mm-hmm. public high schools. It's just not very focused. Um, teachers are doing their best, but there's just limitations. And uh, I, but I saw that book and like something really resonated with me. So like my first real serious efforts in art were like pastel portraits. And uh, I did one. Uh, I did one of uh, Brad Pitt from Fight Club. I don't know if you ever seen that movie. Yeah. But uh, uh, before I did it, it was so weird. Like I remember this. I was in school, and I said I was talking with my buddies. You know, we were all into heavy metal. I said, guys, I'm going to do the art fair this year, and I'm going to win it. That's why I told them, and, and they thought I was crazy. And it was being crazy. But, you know, I, I had been in this class for a little while. I was doing pretty well. Like, like the teacher had us, like, render an eyeball, which was really bad. But, you know, I shaded better than everyone else or whatever. So I, I don't know if I thought I was hot stuff, but, like, I, it's something that resonated with me. Anyway, so I did that Brad Pitt portrait, <laughs> and I won the high school art fair. Really? And, uh, it, was, it was something, you know. Like, in those days, that's, like, your first award that right. you get. And, and it was, like the kind of thing where like people were talking about it, like you'd, you'd be walking through the hallway and like kids would be like, are you the guy who did that thing? You know, and you'd be like, whoa, yeah, I am. And, and like at church, I went to church and like a bunch of adults came up to me. They're like, I saw what you did. That was amazing. So, hmm. uh, it, it, you know, obviously like there's some ego stuff there, but there's also like some feedback from the uh, market. that's telling you, you've got some skills here. And so that kind of like started it as far as art goes. Uh, you know, I also, I don't want to go on too long, Jeff, but. No, this is great. Uh, I, I told this story for uh, like Plein Air Magazine or one of these things, but like my dad would, he really wanted me to ride dirt bikes with him. And uh, he still is to this day a trail rider. So he goes way out into the desert and like just, just rides in the middle of nowhere and long rides, you know. One one time we were in this town or the, this area called Gerlock, Nevada, which is that's where they do Burning Man. I don't know if you know mm-hmm. Burning Man, mm-hmm. but it's way out there in northern Nevada, like way out there. And uh, we were on an 87 mile or something loop. And like I say, I hated the outdoors and I and uh, dirt bike riding always gave me intense anxiety, like the whole time, like fear of getting lost kind of thing. And at, at one point I I. I was with this group, a bunch of adults. They were way out ahead of me, like way out on the horizon in, in the flat desert. And then they disappeared. They just got so far ahead of me. And my dad would allow this to happen because we'd always just stay on the same trail. And, you know, if anything ever happened, they just double back and grab me. But uh, I, I'm all by myself and I'm getting a little antsy. And then we get to a fork in the road. Oh, no. I'm by myself. Yeah. And the mid, I'm telling you, man, like, to this day, I've never been in desert that remote, I don't think. And uh, and I just had like a mental breakdown. Like I flipped out, you know. Yeah. And, and anyway, anyway, I like I, I flipped out. I got back on my dirt bike and I remember riding as fast as that little XR100 would go. Like I had it pegged because I was just flipping out like. Good. Did you I go back right. in the That's other direction? Oh, you went right. No, no. Sorry. I should have said that. I went right. And because once I heard my dad say that, he said, if, if you ever get to a fork, you don't know where to go, go right. Oh, he and did. That was like his, 
that was his way. Anyway, I went right, and it was the trail. It was the right trail. Um, but probably for like a half an hour, I was just flipping out, going like full throttle. And then my dad came up behind me. He had been behind me the whole time, sort of watching me. But uh, oh I, I say that story because like, had like a real mental breakdown and it freaked me out about the outdoors and i still have a little bit of that anxiety every time i'm outdoors like especially hiking and stuff i'm always a little bit freaked out and uh but somehow like i love that like i, I just love mm. that about the outdoors now so uh do you want me to just quickly get into landscape painting yeah well how did you go from being freaked out by the outdoors to loving painting the outdoors. Yeah. Uh, um, okay, so I, I started doing well like the second half of high school with uh, with painting, really. It was like fine art in high school, and I was maybe one of the two or three or four of us were really into it. I had this friend who he and I were real competitive with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, but But it was like, you know, learning to draw the form really well and trying your best with very limited resources to like render form and maybe get a little bit of sense of light. And uh, my senior year, our teacher, who was, she was so awesome, so supportive. She got in contact with the previous high school teacher who had retired, who lived in the neighboring town of Davis. And this gal was doing this thing called plein air. She came to our high school in 2007, I think it was and did a plein air demo for us just on the street outside of the school. Mm -hmm. And um, you know what interested me of it? She she was pretty good. She did a decent job um, at that scene, I remember. It was really nice. But she was also talking about how she's, like, doing well financially doing it in 2007. And, you know, she's selling paintings. And it's not that right there I was like, oh, I could do this for a living, but – you know, it was one of those things that stuck with me. And uh, so I, so that's my first experience with the landscape painting. And I did like one or two really, really bad paintings in high school of the landscape. I just did not know what I was doing, you know. In plain air or, um, or from photos? Yeah, yeah. I, I should say she, uh, she, you know, she told me you get a French easel. Here are the colors you need. Here are a few brushes you ought to have. Here's how you should do your palette, brush washer. And, and then I kind of did all of that by myself, you know, and, uh, you know, did a couple of those and then later high school and like I did my first year at school and here, I, I live in Rexburg now and the university here is called BYU-Idaho. I did two semesters there where I took some art classes. I think I was technically enrolled as an art major. And you should keep in mind, like, as far as the rest of academic, academics go, I just am not great. I'm not good at math, horrible at the sciences. Um, yeah, so yeah, I didn't have anything going for me other than art. <laughs> I find that and, hard to believe. <laughs> A lot of people say that, but uh, I find that hard to believe. Yeah, yeah, you know, there's probably, there's probably like, I could have survived. I wouldn't have Yeah, starved, you would have been fine. It's just like. I wasn't great at anything. So anyway, but the, but the point is, at school, there's just this like huge question mark about what I'm going to do. And so I took a couple art classes and did okay. You know, the, the fun thing about the university, especially at that school, which is pretty good, 
or it was in those days, you know, kind of changed nowadays. But in those days, there were some really good teachers. I took some really good classes. And unlike high school, where I was the top dog or whatever, you go there and you're just not. It's just it. it the, the statistics are against you. <laughs> There's too many good people. And so that's really good for you. Um, but, you know, in those days, um, I, maybe it's worth saying, like, uh, you know, I, I was born into a Mormon family. And so the trajectory for a Mormon is you go to high school. And in those days, you would go to your first year of college, usually. And then you go on your mission that was two years long, which is what I did. I went to Chile for two years. And so that first year, two semesters at BYU-Idaho is just weird. You're like, you're, you're kind of there to, to get your first experiences outdoors, but you're also like your life's on hold till that mission's over. Mm -hmm. And so you just screw around. So I went on my mission and, you know, on my mission, I learned I was really good at language, speaking Spanish. I was pretty good at communicating. Um, and, you know, I did well on that mission and really enjoyed it. So when I came home, I had in my mind that like, Business is what I need to do. You know, I could, hmm. I could do business. Um, I'm trying to be super quick here, but I was still in art classes. You know, that was that was still sort of the that was what the classes I was taking. But in my mind, I was like, I want to be some sort of entrepreneur. And, so why uh, were you taking art classes if you wanted to go into business? Because because um, I think it was like inertia. It was like. Uh, I'm not going to change my major. Um, and you don't even need a business degree to do business. Maybe I'll just sort of see where this goes for now. So, okay. So, yeah. And this is like the, those first two semesters probably weren't even worth much because I don't even know if I got good grades. You know, it was, it was really like this is the beginning of college when, when I got off that mission. Right. And uh, so anyway, I met uh, the girl who became my wife. We were dating at the time. Um, we were at school. And, you know, I'm thinking about getting married and obviously all these intimidating thoughts of like, okay, I, I want to marry this girl, but I don't know what I'm going to do. Those start flooding you. And uh, anyway, like one, I, I, one morning I didn't have classes. I had that French easel from high school uh, packed in my college room. And I just took that thing and I went out and painted um, and it, there was a lot to to the the painting that I did. There's this other weird story that like came together. I think it would be too long and too tangent tangenty to bring it up. But basically, I went painting at this spot that was really significant because this kid had drowned there, saving his friend's life. And I had heard about this story from something else. Anyway, I, I, I the point is, I packed that easel up. I went and painted all by myself. You know, it's one of these September mornings where it's freezing in the morning, but as you're painting, it really warms up. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't another person the whole time. And I just painted this waterfall uh, outside of Rexburg. And uh, it sucked so bad. But I thought I thought it was a really, really, really good painting. I really did. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, that that like moment was just transformative. It's like, whoa, like. I've done this amazing painting. I've I've done it all by myself, like with my own two hands. And there's something about being alone that was also like beautiful. And and anyway, like something about that, like flipped my gears about being outdoors. 
in that moment, like I became really converted to just going outside a lot and trying to paint a lot. So were you there to, were you there to kind of test the waters, so to speak, no pun intended and figure out, okay, is this really what I want to do? Or was it just some afternoon killing time and you happen to have this epiphany? Well, I didn't mean for this to go here, but what I was talking about, about being in elementary school yeah. and you see other kids doing it. And, and yet I had this nagging feeling like I can do that, that, that easel always, every time I would see it, you gave me this nagging feeling of like, Kimball, you could do something with this. Like, again, unlike any other academic thing, um, none of it like made me want to keep doing it. You know, mm -hmm. it was all an assignment that you had to get a grade on. And if you didn't do it, you were going to get a bad grade. And that was the only motivation to do it. But there's something about art that, that I just would respond to. And, uh, and that easel was like, it was like, just tell he was always calling for me, you know, and, and only one time I finally just listened like, okay, I'm going to go out and give this a shot. Hmm. I, you know, what's funny about this. This is so funny. I had uh, Frank Serrano. He has a book out. It's like $15. And in, in the old days, I think you could get it at Hobby Lobby or, or Michael's. And I had this $15 plein air book. It's a really good book because it's dirt cheap and it has processed pictures of like probably 15 paintings or something. And I had that book and uh, I, I had read it a lot. Again, like I, I didn't have any classes at school that were like go out and plan air paint. It, just, right. like, it really called to me. It did. And uh, I finished that first painting. And when I looked at it, I said, wow, Kimball, this is like one of your very first paintings and you're already as good as Frank Serrano. <laughs> were you or do you still feel that way or were you just oblivious? no. no. <laughs> no, not even close. But but like literally, I'm just being as honest as I can. Like right, this kind right. of the kind of insanity that I had that was actually useful because I think if I saw it for what it was, I don't know that I'd be here right now. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's that. Yeah, I wonder. You know, because there is. I've, I experienced a similar thing. I remember one time I was doing a portrait of my wife when I was in my 20s, and I thought, no one paints better portraits or draws better portraits than I do. And now I look yeah. at and now I look at that portrait. And I'm like, ah, it was I mean, it was OK, but it's pretty mediocre. But the irony is now I I'm probably much better painter and, and draftsman. But now I'm right down on my work. It's almost like this survival uh -huh. instinct where you're blessed with ignorance. Otherwise, you're never going to yes. get there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and for, uh, so like for the first year of painting, I would, and, and that first painting, it took me, I think, three or four days to realize, oh my gosh, this is actually really bad. But, but then again, I had that nagging feeling of like, no, but it, it is bad, but, but you could do better. And so I'd go out and paint. And I'd repeat that sort of like mental roller coaster of like finishing a painting, being like, holy crap, this thing is actually really good. And you're basically a pro already. <laughs> I, love you. I love it. <laughs> it oh, and and that, that kept me going for probably a year. And then yeah. uh, I learned to tell myself, Kimball, you're seeing a cycle now where you think you're good and you're not. So why not just bypass that? Put yourself in the mindset where you realize you suck. And somewhere along the way, I, I started doing that. And that, that's a, so, so that first 
way of being that that was really useful because it got me one year of probably some good learning i would i would bet i would bet i grew a lot but then to really grow you need to realize you suck because hmm. you do yeah yeah otherwise you're too prideful to take input or learn from your mistakes yeah 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 yeah, that's Absolutely. strange. It's yeah. almost like being a teenager where you have this drive to rebel in order to figure out who you are. Uh -huh. You know what I uh -huh. mean? It's like, uh -huh. it's not a rebellion thing, but it seems related in a way. You're just blessed with all kinds of stupidity so that you, yeah. And if <laughs> and you have, false confidence. if you have parents, if you have parents that are like too overbearing with that stuff, they can mess you up by, mm -hmm. by like crushing you down. And, and I, I wasn't messed up by my parents. I'm not going, I'm not like saying that, but I'm saying, this applies to art. Like you, I think you need the space mm -hmm. to uh, think that you're great and then realize you're not. And uh, so, so like, you know, a lot of the professors at my school, they would see these like freshman hotshots coming in that thought they were good at painting. And they would, I think they would take a lot of joy and quickly smashing them down as they deserved to be. Don't get me wrong. But I look at that now and I think, Probably better for them to think that they're really good for as long as possible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe I don't know. Was Griffin one of those people that loved to? Yes, stay? yes, because yes, so, he was. I love Griffin. So I, I went to Rick's too, or it was Rick's when I was there because I was there quite a few right. years before you. But, um, and Griffin, it, it, the fact that he would just rip people to shreds, myself included. I mean, come up behind me. And be like, are you kidding? That's the dumbest looking drawing I've ever seen, or something like that. You know, I'm like, and it would make me so mad. I'd go home that night, and I'm like, screw Griffin. I'm gonna totally do the best painting. He's never, gonna, he's never gonna insult me again. I'm gonna shove it in his face, you know. And I thrived on that. But other students, he just brought to tears almost, and it just crushed them. And you know, there's just that, I think that you know, there's no perfect teacher. You know, there's some teach some students no. who gravitate toward one style and some toward another. It's interesting. That's that's true. There's no perfect teacher, and and there's different style. I I couldn't agree more. Um, I definitely see a place for the way that he was, and, and the way he was was not the same as Leon Parson, who's the other big big name landscape painter there. But one thing, and when I was in Griffin's classes is he would choose one or two people to, to really hammer like that, you know, <laughs> out of his whole class. He would, he was brutal to basically everybody, but he would pick one or two out. I don't know that, I don't think he did it purposefully. It was just his personality. And I would feel so honored to be the one that he would really hit hard, <laughs> you know, because, because you felt like he cared. Yeah. It's kind of like this. He's like an abusive father, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I remember going to his office really scared out of my mind when I was leaving because I went through the oh, same yeah. cycle that you did, you know, the two semesters and then a mission. And I, before my mission, I went into his office with my tail between my legs to ask for a recommendation for futures <laughs> colleges, you know. And uh, it was at that moment that I realized that he actually respected me, even though he spent the entire two semesters trashing on me. And he, it was the first time he yeah. ever complimented me and said how much potential I have. And I was like, you've been trying to mold me this entire time. I had no idea. And I was just fighting, 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 but it was all, he had it. He knew what he was doing, at least with me. It worked with me. It worked with me, but. Yeah. 
Well, I, I, and I want to e um, echo that exact story. Uh, so again, every teacher has their different styles and, right. you know, Leon, who's, who, again, very influential teacher at BYU, Idaho, possibly more influential, you know, whatever. But, uh, Leon was different because he his his uh he was equally brutal but very sarcastic <laughs> and you you would never get a compliment from Leon ever 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 I don't think to this day and and he lives in my town I want I want to go visit him but I'm also careful being around him even now because he could just make you feel really dumb and that's a good thing and a bad thing right right you know? right but, uh, but, but Griffin, so I took my first class, I think it was with him. It was like painting one. So it's one of these classes where we probably did three or four projects. It was like a black and white still life, then a still life, then maybe a portrait. I can't remember. And then last project was a landscape or second to last. I can't remember. Um, and I, on that one, you know, the other ones I was okay with. There, um, do you know who was in my class? Was uh, Shay Warnick, I believe. Should I know? I, who I that don't is? know if any. Maybe, maybe not. She paints kind of uh, graphic, kind of Autobahn style birds. She's in Meyer Gallery right now with me. Anyway, she and she's a professor there now. But you know, in those days, we were in painting one together, and it just goes to show you. I, I remember her paintings being the top dogs by far, but. For that landscape, I did, I think, a 2436, maybe it was smaller, 1824 of just this uh, mountain hillside. And I put a lot into that. And uh, he didn't see me in the last, when I did like the last half of it. You know, he didn't watch me developing it. So it was, um, I did a lot in that time. And when it came the morning to present him, put him along the theme. He didn't even know it was mine. He didn't even know me. You know, in those days, he didn't even know your name hardly. He probably knew your face. But he looked at mine and he said, this is really good. He said, whoever did this should seriously consider painting landscapes for a living or something like that. And mm. that was me. And that was probably, I mean, if I could, there's a lot of things that boost you up in your career, but that might have been like numero uno. Mm-hmm. You know, and to get that from him, because he's the kind of guy, I mean, I, I, I don't want to do an impression of him, but he literally, he would say, your trees look like they're made out of turds or something like that. You know, and he would say that in front of the class. <laughs> so funny. He'll say it looks like crap. Yeah. You know? Oh, my he, he gosh. Yeah, that bombastic. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, I got There's one other thing I, I, I usually don't talk too much about myself, but I got to share this with you. So there's one other thing about him that I really appreciated. And so because when I was in high school, I'm kind of envious for all those of all those people that have had these great high school teachers because I've had I had one a high school teacher and um, it was this bitter woman who I didn't understand at the time. <laughs> and uh, I was I had this experience. It was my first assignment in this class. I think I was in the 10th grade. And there was this big old beefy football player sitting right next to me who could care less about this class. And I was interested in it because I liked art. He could care less. And we had to do this assignment where we did like an ad. It was a marketing drawing kind of a class where we did drawing, but we also did text and stuff. And um, we had to do an ad with a person and a car and then some ruled text. 
And I spent all night drawing a car and a person and making it really good <laughs> and like carefully ruling the text and making this thing as pretty as possible. And I was talented. I was that kid that people would gather around, right? So I, it was a good drawing compared to my peers. And this football player guy, he did a stick figure and he literally could care less about the assignment. He made, it was like he was making fun of it. So a day or two later, we get our assignments back and I got a B and he got a B plus. And I was like, and I was a shy kid at the time. I don't know what happened to me since, but I was really shy at the time. And so I worked up the courage to walk into her office after class because I was really hurt by it. I mean, I'd worked so hard on this thing and I didn't understand what was happening. Hurt's probably the wrong word. I was probably irritated, but, but, um, I walked in there really nervously and said to her, um, I just wanted to know why I got a B and so-and-so got a B plus because I feel like I really worked hard on this or I can't remember exactly how I put it. Right. But, um, she started yelling, literally yelling at me and said, you oh can't, gosh. yeah, you can't expect special treatment just because you were blessed with talent, blah, 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 and went on and on and on. And she would, she just wouldn't shut up. It was the scariest moment of high school. And I'm just like, okay. I went right to the guidance counselor after that and dropped the class and never took another art class. So I have a, I had a total of one week wow. of art in all of my school before college because of that woman. And so she then, had some issues. Oh, she had some you serious. Nerve with her. She had some serious. She resented talent, is what her issue was, you yeah, know. And at the yeah. risk of sounding like an arrogant brat, but she, it was off. It's obvious as an adult now what was going on with her. She had some issues, but at well, the time I was scared. Your story, she's basically admitting it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I at the time I was just so freaked out. So then a couple of years later, I show up at Rick's right? Um, or BYU, Idaho. And Griffin is my only teacher. He's the only one I ever had because the first, after the first class I fell in love with him, I'm like, this guy's a, I hate him and I love him, you know? Um, and what, what I, the thing that I love the most was one of the first things I found out. He said on one of the first days of class, he's like, look, I do not grade on effort. The best one in the class is going to get an A plus and everyone else is graded according to that person. And I was like, Yes. Like, this is how it should be, you know, because I thought back I, that teacher was still in my mind, like this whole grade on effort crap, which yeah, she wasn't even doing that. She was grading on bias. But and I was just like, yes. So I, you know, that whole year, I was determined to be the A plus in that class every single time I took his class. I think I took four of his classes, two per semester. But I just love that about his class. And everyone was so competitive because of it. Everyone really wanted to be that A plus that everyone was graded, for, you know, according to um, in the class. Anyway, it was interesting. He was a he was an interesting character. He was, and uh, you know, as you're saying all of this, I want to also mention Leon because uh, it sounds like I'm being really negative about him. With the only things I said, and I, there are other artists out there that know Leon. Uh, you know, I know Josh Clare, Alvin Baselka. We all, and uh, Brian Astle, my good friend, we all had classes with Leon. Leon was very brutal, very brutal. But one thing I've learned about him over the years that, that explains it all is Leon is such an artist to his core that he's truly offended by bad art. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, and when he sees it, I think he has to suppress a little bit of like, 
I don't know what the word you, I don't, I think rage would be too strong, but like, you know, it really offends him and frustrates him. And so that's kind of where he's coming from. But you have to understand that, again, that's a double-edged sword that can be really tough to learn from. But holy crap, do you want to meet someone like that in your life that is offended by bad art? Because mm-hmm. that that uh, really, I have kind of a Leon complex now where I get offended when I make bad mistakes. <laughs> you know, and I get really offended by those. Yeah. And I've got to fix them. And I'm not going to let it slide. Like, I'm not going to let that errant brushstroke ruin this painting for a second longer than it needs so i want to attack that and so uh anyway he he was an incredibly formative teacher too but uh, you know in uh, kind of going off what you said i think that there are certain teachers that really get grading really good and both of those teachers that we mentioned are really good but one thing i did learn at byu idaho is like there were a lot of people who graduated with 4.0s in the art program that aren't out there mm-hmm. making a living with art at all. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that that is kind of encapsulates the pitfall of the university, maybe, because mm-hmm. I would assume almost all colleges are about the same with that. That's like, if you work really hard, you can get that degree, but that has no bearing on whether or not you're going to be able to make money with it. Yeah, that's so. a valid point. Yeah. Grades do not necessarily equal success. No, no, not at all. Yeah. So what happened after college? So I assume you graduated from BYU-Idaho? Yeah, I did. So what was Uh, your next step? How did you transition from that to being a professional? You know, I got to mention Alvin Veselka. I do because, because that was like going into a different school all of a sudden. We got into his class. He was an adjunct teacher. He taught, I don't know how long, maybe five, six, seven years. And, uh, you know, I was in there kind of towards his tenure as um, adjunct teacher. But uh, his class was just painting the figure. That was it. Every day was a new head. We had two models in the classrooms, and there was about 15 of us. We'd split in half and get together and paint. And you get together and paint and talk. And Albin would maybe two or three times a semester would do a demo. But other than that, we were just painting alongside him. Mm-hmm. So you, the class was just like a lot of discussion amongst ourselves, not even Albin lecturing. And man, Albin is like, he's amazing because I'm sure like you, Jeff, we're both opinionated. Mm-hmm. And I think as an artist, you've got to be opinionated. You got to have an opinion about what color to choose and, and what's a good painting and who your favorite artist is and all this stuff. I, I was pretty opinionated and I would love to go into his class, talk art and disagree with people and even disagree with how to paint something and sometimes disagree with Albin about how to do it. And man, he would like let you do that. Really? He, he, would, he wouldn't get angry at you. And he wouldn't call your name or say that's really stupid. He'd listen to you. A lot of times he'd tell you you were wrong because you were. And uh, anyway, I so I had two years where I took his class every semester. And uh, Brian Astle was right next to me. Donnie Tapp, who's, uh, you know, he's out painting landscapes now. Um, and a handful of others. And it was just this free classroom of like free learning and like learning on your own terms but but with a good instructor who could who could a tell you what was right and wrong and b he could prove it by doing it 
Mm, yeah. So, so uh, that class was like, and and then you could pick his brain for two years straight about how to get into galleries. How, how much can you sell in a month? How much money can you expect to make out of school? So to answer your question, when I graduated, I had like a lot of knowing one-on-one a professional painter because he was out there making money um, as a gallery artist in mm. those days. And he still is, of course. And he's not much so, older than you, is he? He is maybe 10 years, maybe a little less. Shoot. He's probably right around 40. I'm 33. Oh, okay. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, geez, Alvin, I'm probably getting your age wrong. <laughs> I have no idea how old he is. I know he's somewhere um, between us. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when I graduated, um, I had, you know, I still probably in contact with him, but, but I also made a conscious effort to be kind of on my own. Uh, there, you know, in that classroom, there, there were a lot of us. Albin, uh, was a teacher and I, I wanted to remove myself from him. Not, not at all as like a personal problem or anything like that, but it's like, Kimball, you're going to go out and be a landscape painter. That was what I was always into. Mm-hmm. You're going to go out and be a landscape painter. So now it's time to get out there and do that and do what you've been taught about getting a good body of work, approaching galleries and all that. And so right when I graduated, I kind of just, I was delivering pizzas to pay the bills. My wife, my wife, you know, I should say she's a school teacher. So she really pays the bills even to this day, you know, the healthcare and, and that stable income. Uh, so she was a school teacher and uh, I delivered pizzas and then I painted like crazy. I just painted at night and plein air whenever I could. We didn't have kids. Maybe we did. Anyway, um, I d- it took two years before I uh, I was do I did uh, the Driggs plein air show two years in a row. And, you know, I think I got an honorable mention. Then the second time I got first place, which is really second place in those days. And the judge was uh, Jane Jane Bell. She's Lundgren now, Jane Bell Lundgren, who uh, used to run the Loom Gallery down in Salt Lake and uh, Mission Gallery and Authentique in St. George. And now she's up in Montana, which I've come along with her. But uh, she gave me that award, and she really um, she saw she saw a lot in me. I don't know how because my paintings were still really bad in those days, but. Took a little while to get into her gallery. You know, it wasn't one of these things where you won an award, therefore you have a place in my gallery. It took probably another year or something. Um, but I, you know, I like did. I took my first trip down to St. George in like 2016 or something. Painted six or seven paintings, and she, I posted them to Facebook, and she really liked them. And I got in the gallery, and she sold a bunch of them. Hmm. And, and so Jane has really been my steady sales even to this day, you know, still like keeping me afloat. And uh, yeah, and so that I would credit her. So that summer that I won that award with her, I sold some paintings and I went to my boss at Domino's and I said, hey, can I take a month off and try to paint? And I'd take a month off and I'd extend that vacation. I think I did that for like six months. And finally I was like, hey man, I'm just going to quit. And I did. That's a good boss right there. Oh man, that, dude! And I would recommend for artists that are beginning, like get a job delivering pizzas or something like that, because they're flexible. You make pretty good money. Like I made twice minimum wage, which in this town that was a lot in those days. Mm-hmm. And it was flexible hours, you know, so I could 
I could really pick my own schedule and uh, work painting around that. That's the kind of job you need. You need a job that's flexible, pays as much as possible, but then a job that's a dead end job. Yeah, you one know, you don't you, get attached to. Right, right. Right. It's so important. Yeah. Okay, so <clears throat> so is Jane your only gallery at this point, or are you in multiple no, galleries? No, she's not. She's not. Uh, so um, I'm in Brushworks in Salt Lake, which is mm -hmm. close to you. And then I'm in Meyer Gallery in Park City. I just had a show last weekend with them. So that's where I am now. Okay. And uh, yeah, that's a gallery situation. Right, right. So how... You said your wife works as a school teacher, and I'm assuming you have children too, right? Two of them, yeah. Yeah, two kids. So how do you balance your day-to-day -day life and, you know, day-to-day -day challenges with your career as a family? Yeah, um, so I'm, I'm stay-at-home dad. I, I am with my son, who's three. Uh, he's not old enough to go to school. My daughter is. She's she goes to the same school as my wife. So she wakes up in the morning with her and goes with her. So it's just me and my son till he's old enough to be in school full time. And I'm with him all day, and I don't paint during the day at all. Oh, you don't? So, no, no, not at all. And um, so my schedule is at night. I go in the studio at about eight p.m. after the kids are down. What are you and serious? Yeah, I'm, I'm a horrible night owl, but that that goes with like my personality really well. I like it. Oh, um, yeah, and, and and so that's how I balance it with kids. And, and then when do you paint and to? It, yeah, so this is this is a really interesting thing. Is I go in at eight, and my general rule is I spend two hours studying before I even pick up a brush. What? Are you serious? Yeah. So you don't even start yeah. painting till 10 o'clock? At least. Some days it's 11. Um, wow. Yeah, but man, it's so important for me because uh, I, I don't know about you, but like, what do you do when you're, when, you know, you've scheduled your time to go paint and you're just not into it? Do you just, you just power through it, paint? Kind of thing? No, I end up building something, you know, or nice. I'm in the shop. You, you've seen my studio. I know. I end up doing all, some I, hobby. Any anybody who doesn't know Jeff, this <laughs> Jeff is amazing. Jeff, like the stuff he's built, I have never met a person in my life. I mean, like I bet Jeff, if somebody needed you to build an iPad, you could do it. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that. <laughs> yeah. No, like seriously, thanks, and it I would look it. good too. It would like look clean. And anyway, <laughs> so that's your thing that you do. Like maybe that's what you do to find your yeah, zen or whatever. That's my distraction. And, and, for me, like, I am good. I, I drink this mate stuff. I mm -hmm. love it. Um, and uh, I, I just get in my studio in front of my computer. I got my mate. And what I'm doing is I'm looking at art. I'm probably either listening to a podcast or listening to music. Music's been my thing really recently. Mm -hmm. And I just do that for as long as I want. I, I don't set a limit on it. It ends up always being right around two hours, right around 10. I'm ready to go. But by the time that time is up, like I am the biggest art lover and the most passionate person about painting ever. Really? And I'm ready to just hit it. That's and, consistent. And I'm in kind of, yeah, very, very consistent. Wow. Uh-huh. And, and it's kind of like you almost feel like you're on a drug, you know, like some sort of art drug where you're just like ready to go. And so anyway, and so usually I only will paint for about two hours, maybe three on a good day. 
Man, you're producing a lot of work for just, what is that, 15, 15, 18 hours a week? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then Saturdays I'll spend a lot of times I'll spend a lot, a big chunk of Saturday. Working. Oh, so you and do work that, during the that day. That kind of sucks. That day. Yeah. It kind of sucks, but that won't last forever. You know, one right. day I'll have a more regular schedule, but, um, yeah, I do. I, I, and I, I complain that I'm slow and I am a slow painter. If you see me painting plein air, it's, it's bad. Hmm. But I, I think that when I'm in the studio, the time that I'm spending is very focused. Hmm. And, um, you know, like uh, in, in school, you would get hit. They would use this word mileage all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's all about mile, miles of canvas. You got to paint miles of canvas. And it, it always kind of rubbed me the wrong way because, like, it's not just about moving your hands and, and getting canvases covered to, to progress as an artist. Like, if your brain is not there and if you're not, again, getting offended by errors, so so seeing the error, then – learning how to correct it and then executing though that that three thing is really what what you got to be doing and so the mileage doesn't it's important but only as long as those three things are happening when you're doing it yeah you know, you know i have a friend who's a musician and i've probably i might have used this on this podcast before i know i've mentioned it to my students but he's a he's a professional pianist really successful guy his name's lex de azevedo cool. you might know who it is Lex de Azevedo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 But, I think um, I do. but anyway, he, we were at his house for dinner one time, and his son, who was probably 12 at the time, was on this beautiful piano and playing something on the piano, just goofing around. Sounded fine to me, but Lex yells across the room at Vitor and says, Vitor, stop practicing your mistakes. And, and he's like, <laughs> slow it down and play it right. And I was like, and then Lex looked at us and he's like, that's how you become just, I mean, you become a worse pianist doing that. If you just sit yeah. there and just play fast and don't worry about if you've made mistakes or not, then you learn mistakes. You learn how to play poorly. So to your point, it's like you can paint and paint and paint and paint, but if you keep painting wrong, you're just learning how to be a bad painter. Just like yes. he's learning how to be a bad pianist by practicing his mistakes, painting or, drawing, or playing too fast. So so true, and and I mean, this is like, this is the story of a lot of the art world, I think. And I'm not talking about people that are out there doing well, but people that are struggling to kind of get into galleries and stuff like that. It's like, you, I don't think a lot of times they're very focused or they're really. I don't think their head's in the right spot, you know? Right. Sometimes yeah. that might be true. Yeah. There's a lot that goes into why that's happening, I think. Yeah. Know? But yeah. So, all right. So let's start looking at your art, but I have, I have lots of questions about process and stuff, but we'll go, we'll start by just kind of yeah, highlighting I, some of your work here. Um, uh, gosh, man, I love your work. You know, one of the things about, I want to talk about that I find so I found, I get it, I kind of think I get it now because you've explained it to me several times, but I remember one time painting with you um, uh, up at that lake, up I-80, I can't remember exactly where we were. And oh, you, yeah. And you had your easel set up and you were looking the opposite direction from what you were painting. You were like, your back was to the landscape. <laughs> and then I came over and looked at your landscape and it was the thing, but it was more it was more than the thing it was it was your interpretation of the landscape and i was sitting there like just trying to copy the landscape exactly 
and you were you had your back to it and were coming up with an interpretation of landscape that was 10 times more beautiful than what I was doing. So I kind of want you to comment a little bit on that. What what is tell me a little bit about that mindset to have your back yeah. to the landscape and and kind of reinventing a little bit. Well, yeah, so I'm talking to a lot of people and and now I'm a little nervous to say this because but like my hypothesis is that this is how the vast majority of your favorite landscape painters are painting. Mm -hmm. Now I, you know, I haven't painted a ton with tons of great artists, but I, I have a, a lot, a handful, a handful, let's say uh, really great artists. And I see that they do this exact thing, which is just that when, when they're out there in the landscape, they, they are not that tied to it as far as features and accuracy and, and, and being faithful to what they're seeing. Um, obviously they're there to catch light and, and to get a, a certain quality of light. So that's like your number one priority is like, and, and maybe not, you know, depending on what you're after. Um, uh, I paint with the artist Silas Thompson. He, he's about my age and he's a very loose, expressive painter, uh, but very deep when it comes to composition, like he's too smart for me. Um, and you should see his paintings when he's painting the landscape, you know, he'll paint it more whimsically or just, you, you know, I, I was painting with him once where there was a group of trees and he like literally painted them a rectangle. It was, it was so weird. And, and, the, but the final painting still basically had that rectangle in it. And it was amazing. It was amazing. Oh, I'd like to um, see that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You should meet Silas. He's the best. Um, but, uh, I mean, he's really a great painter and he's going to like, he's going to be a big, big, big deal. But, uh, where was I going? Yeah. So you, you don't need to be tied to that landscape. You need to, you need to be there again to capture the light. And then a lot of it of what you're doing is using your experience, your practice at having seen shapes for years and sort of filling things in. And borrowing what's out there, you know, I made a comment to somebody, I don't remember who it was on Instagram, like yesterday, just about this, but basically, well, what did I say? Like, when you go outside, you're basically like an abstract painter who uses the scenery as maybe some ideas for what's going to go in your abstract painting. And that's, hmm. that's how I look at it nowadays. Hmm. And if you've, if you've done a good job selecting a decent scene, and then picking and, and, and then like realizing what the scene has overall that's interesting. Your abstract painting is going to resemble that to some degree. Okay. You know, just naturally, because that's why you chose the scene. You didn't just go step out in your lawn and say, I will paint whatever I see first or, or, or I will paint whatever I want. And bar no, like you still went out and found a good spot, right? So there is something to finding the scenery you know, and the, the conditions that you respond to. But once you're there, you kind of got to totally detach to it. And when I'm facing the opposite way of the scene, a lot of that has to do with the light that I want on my palette. Okay. So sometimes I want, sometimes I want full sunlight and sometimes I want shadow. And usually I try to alternate within a one painting. It's something I've been doing because I don't see colors correctly and, and and actually as i brought this up on instagram and to other people I, I learned that like everybody has this fight where they don't see their own painting quite correctly when they're outdoors hmm. and there's no from what i've learned there's no perfect way to get over that 
Hmm. So, but your solution is just, or at least your partial solution is just to switch lighting, go from full sun to shade. Yeah. And, and then the other thing is like, uh, use the studio for that painting when you're done, because that's where you're going to ultimately correct those tones and get them the way that they were. So, hmm. but yeah, yeah. So like plan air to me, I don't know. It's, it's not perfect. It's just not the perfect way to paint. There is no perfect way to paint. Hmm. That's you my, know, so that's my, I think your theory is definitely, I mean, what do I know? But at least from my experience in meeting other landscape painters, I think you're probably at least um, right about most landscape painters because, you know, for example, I'm not going to mention a name just in case this would embarrass this artist, but I remember speaking to another landscape painter who I respect and saying and asking a question about something technical. I don't remember what it was, but I said, so he goes, he answered it by saying, I just paint what I see. And I was like, yeah. and I didn't believe him because I look mm -hmm. at his paintings. I look at his paintings and then I look at landscapes that I'm seeing and his paintings look, I've never seen a landscape quite like that in real life. They're just too perfect. His landscapes are just too nice. Like the, the world isn't that pretty usually, right? Um, and yeah. so I remember I went out painting with him one day and I, of course, I had that on my mind what he had said because i was all ready to as he put it paint exactly what i see and I'm, I'm all prepared to do that and as a portrait painter i'm pretty good at that you know but but he um i'm watching him paint i keep on walking over to his easel and he's not painting any he's not painting at all what he's looking at and i uh -huh. called him out on it and i was like you told me in my studio that you paint just paint what you see that was the solution to my or the answer to my question he goes oh yeah, I guess I don't exactly paint what I see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. He said it just like that. I'm like, he's not even aware that yeah, that he's yeah. not painting what he sees. I mean, it's become so intuitive to him because I don't think he was lying to me. I think he actually believed that he was painting what he saw, but there's yeah, no freaking yeah. way. And when I called him out, he totally, he totally saw it in his own work. He's like, oh, yeah, I guess I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that that's crazy. one of the that's one of the biggest <laughs> epiphanies that i've had as a landscape painter to me and again maybe i'm not quite right about this is it like i say it's just my hypothesis that most artists do this yeah but um it, even if i'm wrong about that it works for me to believe that it's true and so i'm gonna keep doing it but the, it was just such an epiphany to me because i heard i heard the same thing and i think it comes from artists being a little too romantic about their process is you know they they talk about plein air like it's this just incredible experience which it is don't get me wrong uh but but they they say you know when you're out there it's so much easier usually they're talking about comparing it to photo photography and how inadequate the photograph is versus how truthful obviously being out there on location is and they'll they'll say things like that they'll say you know go outside and observe and i i think that what they're really trying to get at is go outside 500 times and see 500 different examples of that and then you have that sort of in your quiver if that makes sense of of, of all these different possibilities and then in, in, in other words 
you you get just enough experience that you can draw on of being out there versus okay well what does that rock look like right now what does that mountain look like with the pine trees that are growing along it you know it's more like developing uh patterns with your art that you can draw on mm. and, and that's why you see that's why every one of your favorite artists has a different way of painting that patch of trees on a hillside mm-hmm. or a rock or whatever it's because they've they've really to me basically every landscape painter is using some form of caricature to get through a given subject oh that's an interesting way of putting it some form of character i've it you know i've often thought at trying to you know as you know i'm trying to become a better landscape painter that one of the trickiest parts is just finding your mark like like yeah. how how you simpl- yeah. how you simplify nature because you're not going to mm-hmm. most of us aren't going to go out there and paint every leaf like i would a portrait you know a paint paint the features exactly as you see them although i want to make a disclaimer on that in a minute i want to make a point on that in a minute too but but you know as a portrait we have to be very precise to get a likeness but with a landscape i feel like landscape painters often find a certain way of making marks or a shorthand for different features of the landscape. I, I, I would go further and say every artist does that again, whether they're conscious of it or not, whether they're mindful of, yeah. of the way their brain works, but he, everyone does, they have to, and it doesn't get talked about very much. And I think the reason for that is, is when an artist is out there instructing their audience is usually people that are, you know, they haven't been through, painting 101 at BYU-Idaho yet. Right. And so you, you need to be talking about perspective, drawing, value, edges, you know, and start there. And this topic that we're talking about is kind of more germane to um, the artists that have been doing it and know that stuff like the back of their hand. But but I wish it would get talked about more because it's, it's a big deal. And by the way, if there's any artists out here that totally reject what I'm saying, seriously please reach out to me because this is one of the big things i've really wondered about it's one of the mysteries that i kind of want to i want to be able to speak authoritatively or or, or with some assurance one way or the other on it but my sense is that a huge part of becoming a successful painter at least in landscape is getting that caricature side down (laughs) so the the point i wanted to make about the portrait was um now i can't even remember why i thought about this i think you had mentioned you we were well we were talking about copying landscape exactly and um another thing that you do is you'll take like a cell phone picture that's like totally crude and not very specific and go back and just use that as a really crude reference and Mm -hmm. um one thing that has kind of always been a little bit of a pet peeve of mine as a portrait painter is as you know, I worked from life for 14 years straight, never used cameras at all. And that was just a personal challenge. It wasn't like, uh, it was, it was to help me train, you know, it, 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 yeah. And I hear that. I hear you saying that. And I say, that sounds like a really good idea. Right. But, but my point in telling you that is, um, many people would say to me during that 14 years, oh, wow. Yeah. Well, photography is really it's yeah lucky you you get to work from life for 14 years get to as though i hadn't chosen it right and made sacrifices to do it but lucky you you get to work from life right and um and because photography is so hard to work from because it's not true to life 
right? And I thought, yeah, and I always I think did. when people say that, well, when you're looking at a portrait, when you're actually looking at a portrait, are you really copying exactly what you see? Because yeah. that's, because I mean, a real person, because I, it doesn't matter for me if it's a photograph or a living model, I never copy exactly what I see. I copy the proportions, right. but I'm taking all kinds of color value texture liberties in in a painting um regardless of it's a photograph or from life so often so it's become sort of this kind of odd thing for me to hear and maybe a pet peeve where people are like yeah photographs aren't true enough to life to work from it's like but they are because you really shouldn't be copying life exactly anyway as an artist we're making creative decisions all the so time so if you're not so let me ask you jeff um, and I have my own answers to this, but so if you're not copying the model that you're there to learn from, right? What are you, what are you doing? Well, I think you kind of already answered this. So <clears throat> as working from life, there's a couple reasons I did it. Um, I had done many multi-figure paintings from photos and the, the, the thing about working from life that is or working from photos that is much easier is that the models never move. They're always there for you. You can freeze them in time. So the drawing aspect is really easy. The main reason I started working from life was because I had done a multi-figure painting and I just finished it. And then I went upstairs into my loft and I was looking at a Da Vinci book and I saw the last supper and I saw all of the sketches he did for the last supper. And I felt like a fraud. I just finished this painting that I'd done from photos and I'm like, I want to know if I can do that. Like if I cannot have a camera and still make something really hard, not just a portrait, yeah. but like lots of figures, landscape, um, architecture, animals, and put them all into a painting without being able to look at a computer monitor or a photo and have it all frozen in time and Photoshopped together. And it's freaking hard. So when I did it, it wasn't necessarily to learn what nature had to offer it was to add resistance and, and so that I could become a better draftsman. You know, it's like going to the gym, you add more weight, you get stronger. Yeah. You know, when I remember the first time painting a child that would not hold still, I was almost in tears, like begging this, it was my daughter at the time. And I'm like begging her to hold still. She was seven years old. She's like, dad, I don't want to. She's sitting there like this, like, uh, uh, <laughs> I was almost in tears, but then, ten, you know, 10 years later, I could draw a kid not holding still, you know, after lots of practice. Oh, yeah. So there's that. But then also, if you know what is real, then it makes your editing more informed, right? So okay, editing, what, what is editing? Editing meaning, um, you know, like I know what skin is supposed to look like. So when I edit, and I add color here, change the value slightly, um, you know, add a little texture. I mean, it, you know, when I, when I manipulate the paint in creative ways, I know, I know what nature looks like. So it, it sets kind of a parameter for me and I know where not to yeah. cross. Maybe it gives me boundaries. Yeah. Um, so have you ever, have you ever just straight up invented a figure? Oh, of course. Yeah. I'm not, I don't, okay. I don't do it very like, often. Okay. Yeah. Because that would be like what I would say that I'm almost in the business in, of 
with landscape paintings, like inventing the figure with yeah, like no, every I'm landscape I'm enough. doing. I'm not good enough to do a whole figure. No, painting no. Painting. And yeah. it's, it's, it's apples and oranges. Like, uh, I, yeah, it's a totally different thing to do that with the figure than it is with the landscape, but just right, to, right. because I think this kind of punctuates what I'm getting at is like the landscape well, I will argue this in kind of black and white terms. You do have to do some of that at least. Somewhat you invention, know, be, invention and editing and changing and shifting right, with right. the landscape. Yes, you you must like as a as a rule. Now, how much you do that is obviously going to be up to you. And the argument that I'm making or the hypothesis that I'm positing is that people are doing it to a huge degree. Um, in, in, in the vast majority of the work that, that you probably love of landscape painters. That's what I'm saying. And, and I would say in my own case, yeah, I'm like inventing the, the figure basically and very loosely using what's out there. And then part of me wonders is, well, I'm saying it's really loose, but there's also nearly a decade now of looking at landscapes to where that's going to be permeating through me. And so a lot of the accurate things I'm doing is just subconscious. And so I am being somewhat faithful to what's out there, but not in a very deliberate way. Does that make sense? No, that's that it. Part? You said it better than what I was trying to say. It's your exposure to nature. Yeah, your exposure to nature and your, and your familiarity with nature that helps you to create sensibly and realistically and yes you know so yes. it doesn't it yes. so it looks natural because you've got this whole library of images of what nature really looks like so when you invent you don't create these worlds of, that don't exist i mean you're working within yes yeah yes and this is this is why and i didn't say it very well but when i said like when artists are talking about going out and seeing, they mean see, go out and see it 500 times. That's what I mean. Yeah, no, I get it. That yeah. experience. Yeah, building that library. Yeah, yeah and it's it's so important. And then and then that really frees you up. And 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 this is a whole conversation that that is so interesting to me. Is like you need brain space when you're out there. If you want to paint really good paintings, especially in the studio, is like. You can't be focusing too much on like some of those lower level things. You need a lot of that to be in, like relegated to your intuition, if that makes sense. It needs to be subconscious that you're dealing with values or perspective or, you know, accuracy with drawing so that you can really think about like a higher concept that, that is what this painting is really about. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. It's so analogy that came to mind is it would be completely pointless throwing a bunch of people on an NBA court and trying to teach them plays when they can't even dribble and shoot like their competition. Yeah. Like, well, exactly. what's the point of teaching them a play? It's far too complex. They can't even dribble and shoot. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and the other thing that, like, really needs to be taught – took this cool class in schools the only non-art class that i took that i i really took with me called light and sound which taught you about what is light and sound and then how do they travel and then what um physiology do you have for interpreting that and then what happens in your brain to filter through all that so it's like going through all these different parts of the sciences to to explain something that actually is germane to my field understanding light 
And one thing that it went into was attention. And attention is this, man, that's a rabbit hole going into what attention actually is. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, basically what we learned in that class is like, you can really only focus, I don't know the number, the exact scientific number, but it's like two or three things. Your brain, the, the, the myth of multitasking is, is a total myth. Mm -hmm. You can't really multitask that much. And when you're painting, you can only think of like two things at once or something as you're moving that brush. And yet, you're every time you put your brush down, you're probably making a thousand choices. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Like there are a thousand things that you're doing. You're, you're getting the right drawing. You're, you're holding your brush at the right tech, uh, uh, pressure. You're trying to get the right texture. You're you're trying to get the right flow. You're thinking about aerial perspectives. You're thinking about linear perspective, you know, and I could just go on and on with all these yeah. things that that brushstroke has to deal with. But your, your actual attention can only be on like one or two things with it. Hmm. And so that's where like, uh, you got to really build that experience up. You know, that's like the nuts and bolts of, of being, becoming like a really good artist and any art that, that matters with any art, like any artist, has to do that stuff. So you're saying that your your conscious attention can only focus on a couple yeah. things, but if you can relegate some of your tasks to the subconscious, then you no, not some, like a bajillion tasks right. to the subconscious. Okay. Like the the more the merrier, right? So that so by relegating some of these things to the subconscious or most of these things to the subconscious, you're you're essentially multitasking or you're, you're getting around that inability yeah. to multitask by, sh by pushing yes. things into the subconscious. That's it. Exactly. That's yeah. it. Exactly. And like when you, so when you're in awe of somebody else's like really incredible painting, it's, it's because of that. It's because of you're in awe of what they were able to commit to their subconscious in ways that is totally foreign or alien to you. And, and like as a good example of this is um, I, I met Josh Clare a while ago. I, I, I don't know him very well, but I was in his studio and he has these paintings from the artist. I don't know how to say his name, Ruo Lee, Ro Lee, who does, uh, well, he does a lot of stuff really well, but uh, he does seascapes and they're insane, like really insane. And then seeing them in person is even more insane because Every single brush stroke has like seven pigments in it and they're wild pigments. It's like, you know, there's like a turquoise and a pink and a yellow and an orange. And, and when, when you, if you go on and Google his work, his work is like, it's very realistic, I guess. Um, and, and when you see it in person and you see all these weird colors that he's got, to this day, I don't know how he does that and how he thinks about that, but that's clearly something he's committed to the intuitive level that he does it so effortlessly everywhere. Clearly, hmm. so and he's just I mixing colors in, into one stroke, like like the a yeah, single we, stroke has a bunch of color in it. Yeah, it does. I don't know how he pulls that off, but huh. yeah. Uh, and my and my best guess is, you know, I tried to figure it out. And I, my best guess is he's just very loosely picking up a few colors, giving it like one twist on the palette. Mm -hmm. And he's so confident that that's the right tone that he can put it, put it down. That's my best guess in how he does that. But the, the point is, is it's effortless for him. And the reason it's effortless is he's done that exercise 
being able to commit it to that subconscious level. And, and the thing is, is you, you never know what an artist was conscious about and what they were thinking. You can't know that, but, um, you know, when you, when, when you're also, when you're in a workshop and you're seeing an artist doing amazing things and you just like scratch your head and wonder about it, well, try to understand this stuff and you'll get a lot closer to seeing why they're able to do, do that. And, and that's going to be useful to you for, Two reasons. One, it's less mystifying, but two, it's much less intimidating to see somebody just totally outdoing you. Yeah, yeah. Because because you've dissected it a little bit, you know? Yeah. You know, some of that is subconscious. I absolutely agree with everything you're saying. But, you know, this whole idea of looking at someone and watching them paint and it almost feels like magic and you're like, how do they do that? Um, a lot of that just is that is because you can't get in their head and you don't know how much they're suffering. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. How much mental suffering yeah. they're going through because it just looks <laughs> yeah. like it looks effortless, but it might not be. So I discovered this with my own work. Like I did it, I recorded a video called cold some years ago. And I remember when I was editing it, of course I painted it. So I remember the experience. And I remember how hard it is to paint. Right. And then, or for me, it was for me to paint. And, um, and then, but when I was watching it, I'm watching myself paint and I was like, oh my gosh, it looks like magic, but it's not magic. It Cause like I remember that. how much it hurt. Wow. Do you know what I mean? I, cause wow. it was weird to step outside of my own body and see how other people see when they're watching me paint and, and, and I realize never had that. No, you haven't. It's weird. It's a weird feeling to watch yourself paint like that. And it makes sense. It does. And it's like, okay, I remember making all these decisions. I know there's some subconscious, but I think that's the definition of mastery, what you're describing. And I'm not, I don't see myself as a master, so I'm still working on that. But, but right. there's, um, but I do know that every time I paint a portrait, I'm thinking of a thousand things at once, as you put it. And it's almost, it's like anxiety inducing and it, exhausting and difficult. But then from standing outside of me and looking in, it just looks like I'm just effortlessly throwing paint down. Like it's not a big deal. Yeah. And it's, it's and not like, that at all. It's kind of, it's almost, I mean, I don't want to complain about what we do at all. So I'm not, I'm not actually meaning this, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's kind of unfair the position we're in when we're in front of like a few students or a lot of students and we have a blank canvas and now we got to get started on this thing. Like if people understood how little you know about what that blank canvas is going to become and how terrifying it is, you know, but, but, you, but from their perspective, they're ready to see greatness occur. You know, they're, they're ready to see like magic happen. And the disparity there between the two is so huge. Mm -hmm. And, and it, and yeah, like I said, it seems effortless from the, from outside of your own body and your own mind, but it's hardly yep. the case. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Um, uh, all right, let's go back to your work. We got distracted there, which is great, but, um, <laughs> so what would you, let's, what do you want to look at first available work or archive or does not uh, matter? Oh, you know, go to, uh, available because I just finished these and they'll be a little bit more fresh in my mind. Okay. Uh, oh, this is the like one you show. just, these are the two you just recently posted. So let's start possibly. Yeah. Go I remember you did kind of, um, on this particular one. 
you talked about how you were adjusting the lighting in the foreground in order to make it more interesting because it was such a big space to deal with. Am I right about that? Yeah. Or am I mixing up your yep, posts? Yep. Yeah. Maybe yep. you can I mean, talk that, a little bit this, about that problem solving experience. This painting, this painting is like painful to talk about because it was so tough for me. And, you know, and the, the tough ones are always the ones that like keep nagging at you even after the fact. But, uh, suffice it to say this, the, the, the study I did on my iPad, was in a smoky day and it was full light but smoky this last summer of moran and the field is approximately what you're seeing here but uh the the cool thing about it was the shadows and the lights on that mountain were all one value totally like and and it Whoa. was the same value as the sky too yeah i know wait 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 wait, wait, wait. oh but you could still not, see you could still see a pattern though like a light and dark pattern yeah. it was just much more yes. close in value yeah, and there's something about what the smoke did to where, you know, that can also happen just at great distances. Right. Um, that does happen. Is it all goes basically to one value, even if you can still see light and shadow. There is a subtle difference, but as an artist, you would group it into one. The smoke, like, made it so an object that was quite a bit closer, you could do exactly that. And so I tried forever to pull that off on my painting and just utterly failed. And that's the big thing that frustrates me about this one. But yeah, so then the, the, the other thing was I said to myself, man, if I could nail that effect, the foreground would be really interesting because it would have different values in it. Mm-hmm. And that would be enough contrast maybe to get through this giant painting where it's like the background is one value, but very interesting. And then the foreground is broken into two values, maybe three. And then, and then I'll be able to be really dynamic and play that up. And that was kind of the loose idea I had. And when I failed doing that background, which I failed for multiple reasons, um, then it became okay. So this is going to be a little bit more of a standard approach with a, a mountain with light and shadow, clouds, sky, and, and then a big old foreground in a 45 by 60 painting. And that was the big headache that I had to change my mind like three or four times on how to make the foreground interesting. So this is, um, forgive my ignorance, but I would imagine it was difficult and correct me if I'm wrong. It was difficult because it would have looked like an extreme atmospheric perspective and yet it wasn't. So you're trying to like the, like your paint, when you put the values closer together because of the smoke, it looked like the mountains were just getting further and further back instead of smoky. Yeah. Is that what was going on? Yeah. Um, are you asking me what went wrong? Or are you asking yeah, me why, what Yeah, is that why was? it went wrong? Yeah. I don't know. I'm just it asking. It went wrong because, because I am way too reliant on value shifts to get form. That's why it went wrong. I'm too dumb to, <laughs> to do what I tried to do there. Seriously. So how yeah, else I mean, would you do it? Using temperature stuff. shifts? Yeah, that's that's what it would be. It's like, and, and I, I wrote a post on this months and months ago before I started this, where I, I kind of asked people about this. And very few people even believe it's possible, but I showed images of great artists who, who have pulled this off. Oh, um, I want to see some but of those. Yeah, you, yeah, like James Reynolds, um, Maynard Dixon, uh, Edgar Payne, 
Hmm. You know, they and, and and but but what you don't see them do is prominently have a, a lot of this stuff. Actually, James Reynolds has one or two where sort of a dominant object has a lot of this stuff because you're really, really getting into the realm of abstract painting at that point. And they really make um, it feel like a smoky day. N- no, it's like something else, but it feels real. It's not necessarily smoky. It's haze. Maybe it's smoke. But huh. but it feels right. It feels really good. And I thought <laughs> I thought, oh, I could do that. <laughs> Man, yeah, that sounds really challenging. Well, I think it pull you pulled it. I mean, maybe you didn't pull off your original intention. I don't know, but it's a gorgeous uh, painting. Oh, thanks. Um, uh, all right. <clears throat> and then oops. Let's see. What's the best way to do this? Okay, now this one you talked about how verticals are tricky. So I have the opposite problem yeah. with a figure. It's like because obviously the figure right, right. when it's standing or even sitting is a vertical form. So I think uh, maybe I'm wrong, but many figure painters um, will gravitate toward vertical a lot. But you were saying that yep. verticals are really tough with landscape. Can you you know expound a little bit on that? Yeah, and by tough. Um, what I'm really saying is it is very rarely a time where I opt for a vertical. Hmm. Um, I, I basically have to make myself do a vertical to, to do them. Um, and, and it's just getting from top to bottom is really tough when hmm. you're looking at flat planes. And um, a lot of that is I need to change my subject matter a little bit. I need to like, branch out and do different things um and and my instagram posts it's it's like you've said for this podcast where you like learn from it my instagram posts are like that where i do get a lot of interesting feedback and the main consensus the the common thread that people were saying is vertical for landscape painters is intimate generally speaking and i I think that that's true not this is not an intimate painting don't get me wrong but uh, you know, if you really want to do more verticals, go in and paint more trees, more vertical mm. waterfalls or, or, or find a vertical subject, you know, find a vertical subject. And it, the, the point is, is landscapes are not vertical and subject. So the only way to get that is tighten up, you know? Oh, okay. Yeah. That's good advice. Huh? Well, I think you pulled it off and I, because I think you, you created some vertical subjects in the clouds yeah up here well and 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 that was the idea with this one so these paintings are from meyer gallery in park city which um is uh, it's my second show with them it's always an interesting show for me because i'm having to do subject matter you know they 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 want a certain kind of subject matter they're very good about letting me paint what i want but you still have to kind of paint stuff that's a little more appropriate for them Mm-hmm. And, you know, skies are one thing that I like to do with them that I don't get to paint with a lot of uh, my other galleries. And um, and then this is, of course, kind of a mountainy subject, though it's pretty nonspecific. So I put them together and, and went with that one. But those clouds, they're from – I just saw them driving to, like, the gas station or something in the middle of town last summer, and they were amazing. But it was one of these things, Jeff, where maybe you as a non-landscape painter – it's it was such a small little part of the whole sky you know what i mean right right but uh, i saw that part and just snapped a picture and that was what i got that from a really really crappy 
photo reference. So did you superimpose this sky into a different yeah. landscape? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did, which is a scary thing to do, too. So there's so many ways I could screw that up. So Yeah, it's gorgeous. So <clears throat> how do I get back to your gallery? Oh, I click right here. Okay, okay, good. Let me flip it around here. <laughs> you don't know how to use your own website. <laughs> Okay. No. All right. So here's one. I love Aspen paintings. What, and, and you don't have yeah, sizes me, on here. I wish you had sizes, but how, how big is this? Uh, that's a 30 by 40. Okay. And uh, what do you want to know, Jeff? Well, here's a question I have for you. So I went out painting with somebody once and they said that they avoid scenes like this because it's too busy and too much information to organize and um it is. it is busy and a lot of information but you pulled it off so tell me how how do you approach a scene like this that's got a lot of information to manage um the answer is pretty simple but also i should say i don't do a lot of these either i don't do a lot of aspen paintings um it's, I think that's a subject that's so tough to add to. There's so many artists that have done it. And, uh, you know, I tend to only do a scene that I feel like I could do something with. that's not going to be just like everybody else's. Right. Um, and so I, I don't, I'm not even professing that I, I accomplished that with this. But anyway, it, like, I, I, I it, that's just for getting started. But um, the way I do it is... For me, the way to get through a scene like this is really to, to see it as an abstract painting, like more so than than other things. Like, like I just say to myself, Kimball, you have full liberty to change this scene completely. So almost. So the, the reference for this was at Spring City, where you and I painted, painted with each other last, probably this last mm -hmm. summer. And it was just it, there was no creek in it. And it was just a. a a scene, a basic Aspen scene. And what I liked in that little painting that I did was the colors, you know, they, they were interesting to me. I felt like I had kind of broken new ground. So when I did this painting, I took zero pictures of that scene, sadly. I wished that I did, but I had, so I had zero photo references and I uh, gave the painting away to a friend before I started it. So this painting was fully from my head. Pretty no much. way. Yeah, I'm not saying that to toot my own horn because it's really not about that. Well, I, it's impressive it, uh, nonetheless. That's really cool. It's really convincing. <laughs> yeah. It was, so anyway, it was, like I approach it like full abstract. I'm going to let color itself dictate what values and colors I need to be using here, if that makes sense. And, you know, like... Abstract painting, I don't do it, um, and I don't even look at a ton of it, but you know how it is, Jeff. Sometimes you'll see an abstract painting that's a really interesting, strong painting, no matter your thoughts about mm -hmm. modernism and mm -hmm. realism, right? That's a whole debate that you know I'm happy to get into. But it doesn't matter. You, you would agree that there's some abstracts you've seen where you're just like, whoa. Well, I, would, I believe that abstract painting is really hard to do well. Exactly. It's really exactly. hard. I mean, because if you're a realist, you should be a great abstract painter. You should, and, everyone and my, should be a great abstract painter. 
Exactly. Now, my theory about the abstract work that really like resonates with you is that when you're seeing it, it's because it resonates with reality somehow. Like, mm-hmm. like, like maybe that was the, the, the colors of the teacups that your dead grandmother used to give you tea with when you were seven years old. And that's what you're responding to. And, oh, you know, that's a little huh. too, that's a little too literal and, and kind of woo woo. But, but, you know, sometimes I'll see one that just the tones in it are just so like primal in the sense that like, oh, I would see that in the Nevada desert. Like that is the perfect palette of the Nevada desert right there or, or whatever. There's a million different things I might equate it to. Maybe it's the colors of Walmart when you're walking into Walmart. I don't know. But my point is, is like there's something there that you're responding to that absolutely has a context in reality. And so sometimes I hypothesize that you can make a realistic painting by just throwing down colors and tones and Mm. finding the ones that resonate and then figuring out why they resonate and then make a painting out of that. Oh, that's it. That's cool. Um, And and when you combine that with understanding that a painting is just like three values, you've really got a strong backbone to, to go off of without having a photo reference. Yeah, and I'm squinting at your painting right now, and it really is just three values. Yeah, that was important with this one. You you could only do that if you kept it at like three values. I mean, obviously, for all you are watching, you can't take that too literally. Obviously, there are infinite values in there. But as far as the big shapes go, the big pattern, I see three big big value pattern, a big value shapes. Yeah. That needs to be said, what you just said. Um, yeah. just And it's a basic thing about value structures. Value structure is not literally saying that only three values, but what it's saying is there are groups. And we as human beings, we know how to group things. And yeah, there will always be an infinite amount of variance within one of these groups when you're dealing with oil paint. But um, you're, you've got to stay within a reasonable range within that group of values. And usually with a landscape painting, Traditionally, three or four values is about what works well. Yeah. There are some awesome exceptions to that out there, but anyway. Yeah. Have you um, ever heard of Doug Snow? I think I'm getting that right. Is it Doug Snow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, uh, so he's an abstract I, painter that's inspired yes. by landscape. Yes. And his work I, I know is his, so I, cool. It's very interesting. I know a collector who has a bunch of his paintings like really prominently. I've seen a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he's really alive anymore. I think he passed away a few years back, but he taught at the University of Utah some years ago. And yeah, and he's got stuff in the airport. He's got stuff in the library. But his but when you said that an abstract painting that's successful probably has some connection to nature and draws memories or experiences you know to our minds then i thought of doug snow because he's literally doing that like he's literally taking yeah. a landscape that we all love and we're all comfortable with and he's turning it abstract to to the point where it's yes. almost unrecognizable but not quite it's just right yeah. on that line yep, yep. between landscape and abstract yep and then and then there are artists that, that are I'm going to say the opposite side of that, but they're so close, honestly, uh, that I love a lot and wish I could paint like and hope to. Like um, David Sharp is one of my very favorite up in Canada. Simon Addyman, 
Um, I think he's in Auburn, California or something. And then uh, Doug Fryer is a great oh, example yeah. of this. Where Doug Fryer's work, yeah. Where they're painting landscapes that are definitely landscapes, uh, but they get so loose that they're really treading the line. And, and they're those people, man, I love their work. They really kind of woke me up to this, just mm -hmm. looking at it. You know? mm -hmm. hmm. Okay, let's look at a couple more paintings here. Um, one thing that I love about your work that I don't want to say it's unique to your work, but it's one of the strengths of your work, because I think in my opinion, any great landscape painter does this. And that's the reason I say it's, it's not, I don't want to say unique because it, it to me, it's what makes you great. Right. But is that you have, mm. um, well, this one's looks like a smaller painting. Let me look at it. Yeah, find a it's bigger smaller. One. Yeah, let me find a bigger one. Help me out here. Bigger one with textures. Is this one bigger? No, this will do it. It's a 20. Okay. Yeah, this will do it. So what I love about your work is that, you know, you had mentioned earlier that artists kind of create this. Well, I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, maybe, or I'm paraphrasing, but they kind of create this sort of shorthand for certain things or, or a way of making marks, mm -hmm. a way of simplifying mm -hmm. objects. And you do that, but you don't have a predictable one. You know, like when you paint, Good. when you paint mountains, it's not always the same mountain, right? It's not like, oh yeah, there's a Kimball Geisler mountain. I've seen a thousand of them, you know, or there's a Kimball Geisler bush. I've seen a thousand of them, you know, just another one, another Kimball Geisler bush. Like every mountain that I've seen in your work is its own unique structure. And I, I, I love that about your work. Now, is this something that you're aware that you're doing? Is it something you're striving for? Or is this just something I'm pulling out of my rear end? An observation I'm pulling out of my rear I, end? Yeah, I don't know. There's probably a good answer to that if I thought hard enough. But as you're saying that, it makes me feel good that you see that. So, so there's that to that. One thing I did want to say is I know a lot of artists who do have predictable mountains or trees or bushes or whatever. And I'm sure you'd admit that there's a lot of that that is also good in its own way to oh, add it's, that style. Yeah, it's great. Right? Yeah. Yeah, style and caricature matters. And so, you know, this is not, what you're saying, I'm sure you'd agree, is not to say that one way is better than the other, but that, uh, but you, but that you're recognizing like that, that it's a little bit less, with me, which I, I like to hear. Well, that. I would say um, this, I would I say this, and this is just my opinion. I would say that for me personally, okay. it's not about better or worse because I'm not an authority on this, but for me personally, I appreciate work where every time an artist does a painting, it's a unique interpretation of a new subject. Like I'm not yeah, personally, cool, I'm huh? not as interested in caricature, extreme caricature that's re repetitive. But that doesn't mean it's better or yeah. worse. It's just my personal taste. So, so when I'm when I'm complimenting you, it's coming from a personal aesthetic taste that I have. Well, thank you, dude. I appreciate it. I yeah, and I, I with stuff like this, I can't I can't see my work from your perspective. I wish I could, but I can't. Um, so to answer your question is like the driving way that I deal with this stuff is I'm a big fan of the word framework. Um, 
framework is kind of the way you interact with the world. It's the lens through which you see the world. And whether you know it or not, you have a framework. But if you don't think about the concept of your frameworks like like uh, explicitly and like really like do mental work to figure that out, then your framework's gonna probably be a little bit sloppy. And so the framework that I approach this stuff from is one of like identifying a few that like the most important principles and then sticking to those things to, to navigate through that. So using principles as a way to figure out how to like, I'm going to use the word render a mountain or something like that. Again, you know, when you're a brand new artist and you see like a mountain, like like think about like Everest and how complex that thing would look, all the shapes and rocks and shadows and snow, figuring out how to do that. Well, rather than like look at a picture and see the shapes and render them out, you can actually use principles to sort of uh, hack that process. Hack is probably the right 21st century word. Uh, just just let principles guide you through it basically mm-hmm. and and so the, and then when you find those principles put them into a hierarchy and follow them accordingly hmm. so you know like like understanding a mountain probably the first thing is going to be probably drawing uh so you got to draw that mountain in a way that comports with gravity and with the uh, experience of what a mountain looks like so, but but and I'm just kind of talking to loose contour. I'm not talking about the little nitty gritty. And then after that, value is going to be the big thing that you got to understand about it. So value within the context of um, the local tone of the actual object. So am I painting rock or snow or trees in light and shadow? And mm-hmm. then, and then how do those all compare to each other? And then, and then how does that fit within my value structure that we mentioned from the last painting? Okay. Mm-hmm. And then like below that is going to be the edges that join those values. So, you know, core shadows are going to have a soft edge. Is that soft edge, softer textured edge? And then the, the edge of the cast shadow is going to be a hard edge. And you you see that in that painting. And then the form edge of the object, whether it's a mountain, a tree, a bush, whatever, is the hardest edge. Um, you know, so I, I, I'm trying to just spout this stuff off without going too far into detail with it. Right. But my point is, is, this is the framework that I'm running through. Again, most of this is committed to that subconscious level. But these things I have explicitly thought a lot about and have opinions about. And whether they're right or wrong doesn't actually matter all that much. You just look at my painting and decide if you like it, you know, and, and that's mm. what you see is what you get. Yeah. No, I appreciate and that it, explanation. And I know you do this too. Well, I try. But let me, you know, I appreciate the explanation, but as I'm looking at this, I'm like totally geeking out over something. These bright, okay. deep, chromatic blues in the, where the shadow overlaps the snow patches are freaking awesome. <laughs> it's just such one of those nerdy things where it's just like, what, I don't know what you use, cobalt, cerulean, what are you using in here? doesn't matter, but it's uh, like, yeah, it's, just, matter. Uh, it's just paint, right? But it's when you look at it at a glance, yeah, that's snow and shadow. But when you really look at it, it's these gorgeous colors, gorgeous. Well, that, that goes colors. back to um, that goes back to my art classes with the figure man, and you know this is like 
Well, at least we were taught that I think it was like an illustrator's trick where when they'd like paint the head and you were in three quarters light, when your cast shadow of like the nose would half overlap the highlight of the cheek, that that was kind of a gimmick you could use to really make um, one of your figures or whatever pop or a part of your figure really pop. You know what I'm talking about? Just this phenomenon gimm- where a cast shadow. No, explain more. I'm not familiar with it. It's just, it's just, and this is something that can happen where a cast shadow will halfway overlap a highlight. And by highlight, you know, people, we use oh, I see words, what you're saying. Words. I see what you're saying. I thought you were heading into color. You know, I wasn't following. Okay. No, no, it's just, a, it's just a little thing. And, and basically it's a real thing, but you can use that as kind of a gimmick to make, make a uh, figure drawing pop. You know, right. it's something that I really like to see. Um, in, in the in the figures and so what you're seeing there is exactly that but translated into landscape and it's a it's a bit different but it really starts there for me which is you know little eye candy things that are going to make your painting pop yeah and make people respond whether whether they were smart enough like you were to identify that you love that or or sorry i shouldn't use the word smart but experienced experienced enough, enough yeah or or they just see it and they say that's such a colorful painting you know Right, right. Yeah, most people that aren't painters might not pick out the details. But the other thing I want to point out is um, that I find one of the challenges of painting is the distribution of shapes and balancing, you know, arranging shapes well. And this goes to what you were saying with all paintings are abstract paintings, right? But just how, like, I'm looking at these, this rock coming through the snow and knowing you, I know that you didn't just copy that. But that you design no. that you design these shapes so that you have big shapes, medium shapes, small shapes, and and it come this this whole mountainside is just by itself is like a beautiful abstract painting, just by itself. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I know what you mean, and your your analysis is pretty much spot on. I don't, I actually. No, I didn't totally, but I almost completely invented that mountain. And it certainly didn't Come belong on, in that That's scene. incredible. But the other thing is you had yeah, mentioned edges. And that's the thing that I think yeah. makes um, your work special is that, like, you know, take this mountain. It's got these really hard edges. It's like this jagged, rugged mountain. And and then this one is, is worn down, a little bit more rounded off, more mm-hmm. weathered, old old mountain right through here and that contrast is just it's so true to nature it's so authentic looking oh man thank you thank you because that is really that that's what saying when i was finally resolved that mid-ground bluff thing whatever we're going to call that Mm -hmm. this basalt wall which is which is typical for like being around the snake river which Mm -hmm. is what this is uh, yeah, you know, like when I finally got those, I'm like, oh, I'm, I, it, this painting was a real struggle for me. Was it? I did it over a few few months on and off, and that was the thing that you just picked up on that finally I'm like, oh, there we go. And oh, no kidding. Nobody's ever said that before, and you're, you're like, you really picked that up, so that's cool. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad. All right, let's look at one more. <clears throat> um, so this one was on your homepage, but we haven't talked about this one yet, have we? Uh, no, no, we haven't. I, so. I want to talk about this because of this water. <laughs> My gosh, that is cool. It just feels so violent. 
And then, and I know, and I want to talk about this too later, but on your, on your homepage or on your contact page, you have listed the paints you use and you use a lot of opaque paint, apparently not all opaque. Yeah, I think sadly, sadly, I wish I didn't, but yes. <laughs> well, I, that's not a critique, but what I, it's, uh, what I'm noticing is you created this sense of translucency in the water but you're using a predominantly opaque palette. So yeah. it's obviously a combination of the right colors and values. And it's an, it's a, it's an illusion of course, which is what all painting is, but beautifully, a beautifully accomplished illusion of transparent, violent water. Thank you. Um, th thanks man for all these compliments. I, I don't love compliments. I don't really care <laughs> about them in the, in the sense that like, I don't, I, you know, every painting I do, I don't like, I don't even like looking at it. And so just, just so you know, like, yeah, that's how I am too. Um, We're all that I, way. I appreciate what you're saying. I really do. And so I don't want to sound ungrateful or whatever, but, um, is it, what, what do you, what would you like me to respond to? Well, I mean, I'm assuming again, that a lot of this water's made up. Yeah. A lot of it be. is. Had to be. Yeah. And uh, because even if you photographed it, you'd have to shoot it at a pretty high, fast shutter speed to to freeze it to look like that anyway, right? So tell me yeah. a little bit about, and maybe it's unanswerable. Um, maybe it's just your library of your of experiences that you have in your mind, and there's no way to really explain it. But if you could, maybe just say a few words on how you take such a difficult subject and and make it so convincing i mean what what kind of problems are you do you feel like you're facing and and how are you dealing with them in a subject okay. like this water um okay the first thing that really matters with this jeff is that i can only handle one and maybe one and a half things that are really outside of my skill set Okay, so I'm, I'm already choosing a scene where some of the other elements are already kind of like, okay, I can, I can more or less get through that section. Okay, mm -hmm. so that, that needs to be said because I'm stacking the deck in my favor. And I, I try to use that a lot. Uh, just paint, paint to my strengths to some degree and then allow for just a little bit to be well outside my strengths so that I can grow and so that I can do something new and interesting, which this, this kind of painting was different for me when I painted it. I, and by the way, I have uh, smaller versions of it from about five years ago. They're not on my website, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of growth between those and this one, mm. let's say. <laughs> uh, but but they were those were popular when I did them. You know, they sold and people really liked them. Um, I'm, I'm not, not surprised. Now. Uh, but, but totally different. I mean, if you saw those, you'd be like, oh, my gosh. Hmm. Um, you could find them online, I'm sure. But um, so that's one thing is I, I sort of paint to my strengths and I know what areas I can handle and deal with. And then, okay, and, and I did, I think, have a photo reference or two of this, mm -hmm. but I had to be really, really loose with it. With that photo reference, what I was using it for is what kinds of features does that waterfall have rather than how does it look, okay? Okay. And that's all about that, like using principles to guide you. So 
what I do is I like see the feature and I'll conceptualize the feature. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, I'll that turn totally it into does. a concept. And then I use that concept to inform, inform the kind of thing I'm going to do. And then, and then what I'll do is I'll put all of that back into those uh, principles that I was saying in that last painting, that hierarchy of principles, and and then use those principles to get me through. So again, drawing. So you got to draw out the loose shapes of that, and then okay, what values are those going to be? And I need to I need to talk about values in a second. But and, and then and then what are the edges that are going to connect them? And that was the tricky part with this one is what are the edges that are going to connect them because they are so. It's such a nightmare to figure that out, but, but you still have to follow a lot of like important principles. Like where's that hard edge going to go amidst all of these really soft edges and where's the texture going to go amidst all of this smooth, ethereal cloudiness. Mm. That's like the battle right there. Yeah. And then then, annoyingly, annoyingly color, you also have to be thinking about, which is something I try to keep color really far at the bottom, but if you don't get the colors right, it starts looking bad. And that's, that's one thing that will always ruin a painting for me is when like, I have to also be thinking about color right now. That's hard. Hmm. That's funny because the whole time I've been looking at the color and I've been comparing these shadows colors to the snow colors that you chose on the last painting. And these are much more warm. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a, a really interesting decision. And, and it's beautiful. I don't know that I would have come up with that same color choice for the, for the, the, the shadows of the water. It's gorgeous. Okay. And so this is, this is the thing that I'm into right now. And I really want to push in my work going forward. And this painting and maybe one or two others has been like my first foray into this, but it's this idea of turning, uh, like, I think um, like, uh, like people in the video game world and stuff do this where they will like, they have like the art director will come to them and basically hand them a palette and say, you know, paint this scene of the knight slaying the dragon, but do it with this palette kind of a thing. It's sort of doing something similar, but but in different areas of my painting. So, like, have the background all belong to one tone. Okay. And then have the foreground belong to maybe one tone or two tones that's stark, starkly different, but resonant. That those two resonate with each other, but they're very different. And so, right. so you can tell that the foreground belongs to one of these tones or maybe two. And then the background is one tone. And, and, and and what that translates into is you're inventing the tones by fiat. You're coming in and that's what I did on that painting. So the colors you're seeing there, I I painted a, a, a plein air of this like four or five years ago. Like I said, I can't even remember what the colors were, but the colors you see there are just selected again by fiat. I just, I chose that to be the color that goes back there. Hmm. That makes sense. No, it does. And you obviously did. I mean, to me, it's obvious only as a painter because it feels natural. It feels real. But when I'm analyzing it as a painter, I can see that it was a creative decision and it's just a a beautiful creative decision. It's. Albin Vaselka would make us do once a semester, an arbitrary color portrait where colors were required to be, wrong 
totally wrong. Oh, I have the same assignment uh, but you, with my students. Right, but you have to but you have to get the value right. And you know how they look when they come out. They're weird. They look psychedelic, but they look real when you do it correctly. Mm-hmm. And that doing that assignment, probably what have I done it four times? I used to hate doing it too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, doing that four times is enough to convince me of the principle that like, Color doesn't matter nearly as much as you pretend that it does. Mm-mm. But color so relationships that's, that's what I'm do. applying. But color relationships do, right. right? So making sure they're warm where they need to be warmer and cooler where they need to be cooler. Kind of. But but I actually think that even that, it goes to that abstracting. It actually matters more on an abstract level than it does on, a, you know, analyzing that tree and location and reality level. Like, like how warm should that shadow be in relation to the lights I'm seeing on that tree? Yeah, you could sort of like figure that out and try to get it right. But actually, if you were an abstract painter and just chose tones without a drawing and just put them next to each other and ask, okay, if I want to value distance of, say, five steps for the light and shadow of that tree, what are some colors that I could just pick? And then how do they resonate with each other? And they, and you just put two little blips on a blank canvas next to each other. If you feel a resonance, I bet you they're going to work as a realistic painting. Does hmm. that make sense? Yeah. I'd love to see some experiments with that and see how that turns out. Yeah. Like to really push that. That's to what I'm talking about. Yeah. Hmm. All of this is like a realization. I'm getting this slow realization that like abstract is kind of an abstract is an annoying term, but like the uh, intuitive side of art is king mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Well, one thing you said about the waves that reminded me of uh, when I'm doing a figure, well, let's say, you know, one of the, one of the things that many amateur artists and students struggle with is painting hair. They'll do like, if it's curly yeah. hair, they'll do all the little curls. They'll just like every hair is a line, you know, and um, instead of thinking <laughs> in terms of shapes and, I'll, I'll tell my students, look, it, basically exactly what you said, just understand the kinds of patterns that curly hair is making or wavy hair is making or mm-hmm. straight hair is making. So the wavy hair are these curved, long, sweeping, serpentine shadow shapes, right? And the curly hair are these short, short little curve, almost ball-like shadow shapes. And, and stop drawing hair, right? Just think of, like, conceptualize it, the way you put it with the waves. You're yes. conceptualizing the different shape type, the, the, the quality of the pattern. No, no, the way I, I think of that is it's like ch- translating it into totally new, um, a new language. Like, like, you know, the images we're looking at right now is actually like binary code somehow at the hmm. same time. Hmm. Yeah, you know, and and it has to go through that press to get to there. And you're you're really doing something very similar, where you, you're you're translating what you're seeing. It's like that class I took. You know, the, the waves come in. Your eye has physiology that interprets it, and then your brain thinks about it, and then your conscious thoughts have to do something with that. And what they do is they translate it into words. So light waves become conceptual words for a second. Mm-hmm. And then they go out out your wrist through your brush into shapes, you know. Are you sure really... you weren't good at science? I'm not buying it. I'm not. I'm not good at it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've had conversations about lighting and all kinds of stuff. I'm like, I don't know. You seem sort of like a scientific mind to me, but whatever. <laughs> I think you're being modest. 
So let me ask you one final question. So you've been a professional painter for roughly eight or so years now. What advice yeah. would you give to an aspiring artist that wants to have a career in this field? Yeah, okay. I actually have an answer. Usually these open questions, I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> a couple of things. Okay. You've, you've got to, I think you've got to take care of the financial side of things right away. Unless you're like a single person who somehow has very low cost of living, you know, and you can just kind of get by with very, very little. Mm -hmm. You need, you need to really resolve a stable way of existing without the work. But like I said before, one way that's not going to be too tempting that you have to go that route. So you might have a great job as a graphic designer that's part-time and, and you're able to pay the bills with that, but be careful with that kind of a thing because that can be a career. Right. And, and so, and this is just saying, if you want to be a fine artist, if you haven't committed, then keep your graphic design job, you know? Mm -hmm. But uh, so, so that would be one would be the financial side. Now, the uh, what you should do side, as far as art goes, in my, in my opinion, especially as you're learning, but man, yeah, I know that you'd agree with this. Not every artist does it this way, okay? And they're very successful, oftentimes way more successful financially by doing it the other way that I'm about to talk about. So just keep in mind, there's more than one ways to skin this cat. But mm -hmm. just in my opinion, a lot of artists are like in school and they'll, the, you know, I've had a bunch that come to me and, you know, they, they like want advice and stuff and, and stuff. And I think that they want some sort of like networking business advice about how to get through that business side and who do they need to talk to and who, mm -hmm. what connection do they need to make? How do they build their name? You hear that all the time, your name, like whatever. Again, there's a <laughs> lot of people that, that, that they have insane careers based on a name. And, and right. I'm not even trying to be that cynical about that. There's even great artists that do that. Okay. We know them and they're amazing, but like, gosh, if you're in college thinking about your name, I mean, I, I feel like that's a, you put in the cart way before the core, the horse. And what you really got to focus on is being a good artist. To me, that's, that's what I'm trying to get at. Ultimately is like, forget the business side, forget the, the galleries that you need to impress or the people in the art world that you think you need to impress. If you, in my experience, like the thing that really got me my very first traction, you know, Jane gave me that award. Um, and, and she's talked about this before publicly. I think she's, she's so nice. She's like told my story to a handful of other people, which is just like so nice. But she's, she's told me this and she said it after she gave me that award. Like I say, it took like about a year, but there were a couple of artists that just on their own, Winter and say, have you seen this Kimball Geisler kid? And there were people that I didn't even know. They'd seen my work online. And they said, I really like his work. And they just said that to her. It was like two or three artists. And I really think that that's kind of what made the difference. And you can't do that by making connections or, you know, mm -hmm. paying for more advertising. You can only do that by really working at what you're doing. And by the way, those paintings, I, I hate to say it, they weren't that great. But but in those days, I really was just about my craft. You know, I've got enough money to make making uh, delivering pizzas, and my wife working, 
uh, just become a good artist and get noticed that way. Yeah. Become really good. And then, and then after you get noticed, don't stop doing that either. That's, that's my opinion. Like I say, just always try to be a good artist rather than get connections and develop a name and network. You know, it, as you're talking, it, if you, I had this thought, if I were to open a restaurant and I thought to myself, all I have to do is get the right people into my restaurant and my restaurant is gold. So the right I get critic. the right critic, the right movie stars, right? So right. I get, I don't know, some random, I get Brad Pitt into my restaurant. And then or you get Gordon Ramsay, you get Gordon Ramsay. Gordon Ramsay. Okay, restaurant. fine. And I get him in a restaurant and then I serve him crappy food. <laughs> <laughs> Do you really think your restaurant's going to go anywhere? Yeah. Like it, it ultimately, if the food's not good, it doesn't matter who you know. Yeah, that's an amazing. I can't believe you're able to do that. I can't do that. That's amazing enough. It's yeah. exactly right. So you got to get your craft right. That's great advice. I appreciate that. Well, Kimball, thanks a ton for doing this. This was awesome. It was cool to pick Dude, your brain a little bit. Thanks for tuning in to the Undraped Artist Podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe. And if you could, leave a comment or review. That really helps the channel. Please share the show with your friends. And if you're feeling generous, consider a monthly donation at theundrapedartist.com. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next week.